Welcome, Revelers, to a new and different episode of Revel Revel. Today, I've got Aaron Miller on. He is, as I call him, a travel guru. He kind of specializes in the treks, the long journeys, the journeys of the spirit as well as the miles. And I think that if you listen to this and then you want to go and check out his work on his Armchair Explorer podcast, you will be whisked away to far off lands that you might not be able to go to or that you just prefer to live vicariously through him and his guests on his podcast. And he recommends lots of different travel stories, which will be in the show notes. And because of him and the way he does his very mixed media sort of cinematic, as he calls it, episodes on his armchair explorer, I have tucked inside, through the help of my husband, a little sound effect fun for you. If you couldn't figure out where it was, check out the show notes. It will tell you where it is in the episode. I want to just say that this will be the only episode for the rest of September. I'm going on sabbatical and you'll hear about it in this episode. And you know, all these other podcasts out there call them seasons. So maybe every time I take a long trip, I should have a season change. Maybe when we get back in October, that should be season three. I don't know. I don't know what that means as far as labeling all the episodes. So call it what you will. You get a ton of free and awesome stuff by listening to this podcast. Please like, subscribe, follow, share, all that good stuff. And I hope that it turns into a like, follow, subscribe, share sort of thing for Aaron's podcast too. And without further ado, here's Aaron Miller. Well, hello and welcome to Revel Revel. I am Lauren Drabble and today I have an esteemed travel guru, writer extraordinaire, podcaster extraordinaire, Aaron Miller. Welcome. Thank you. I've never been called a guru before, so that's the first. I'm excited to chat with you. Thanks for having me on the show. I don't think it will be your last. <laughs> so as you know, Revel Revel is a little bit of a non-famous people generally getting to tell their life stories like famous people do on podcasts all the time. But you know what? You're getting kind of famous. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I'm on the Z list, maybe, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fighting to get on that Z list. So let's delve into you and how you got to be where you are and stuff like that. So obviously you're English. Let's start there. I think I saw that you're from Brighton. Is that right? Right in England, yeah, south coast of England. Uh, I actually, I was born in the States. My mom's American, she's from Queens, New York, and we moved over when I was really little. Hence the accent. I've got, I basically, uh, I sound completely English apart from the, the letter R, which is uh, <laughs> the, the only American part of me left. And now, <laughs> but actually, I moved over to the States about eight years ago. I, I live in Colorado now, and I absolutely uh, love it out here. It's beautiful, blue skies. Um, I always say Colorado famously gets 300 days sunshine a year and then back in Brighton, we get the other 65. So I feel like we've traded up. Um, but yeah, from the South Coast originally, um, Brighton's a great town and very proud to come from. 
Well, I have been to Brighton many times. Have think, you? Oh my gosh. I think I told you that my husband's English. Oh, interesting. Okay, great. So, but he's been in the States about 27 years now. So he sounds like this, American, 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 France, American, 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 <laughs> banana, you know, things like that. <laughs> Bananas are hard one to let go of, that's for sure. The one I really struggle with is water. People still don't understand when I say water, you know, and they're like, what? And I'm like, water. I won't. <laughs> you know, I part of me is so ecstatic that it happens to you too, but it is so just shameful that it happens to anyone <laughs> for for years and years and years. So we lived in Atlanta for a long time, and in the South, you know, it's they they struggled with his accent all the time. But it's ridiculous when a server would come up to your table and say, "What would you like to drink?" If someone says Walter, <laughs> what on earth could it be? <laughs> I know. Just like power elimination, just narrow it right down. By the way, that was a good English accent. I hope we uh, can hear a little bit more of that through the show. That was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. Well, my English accent is quite shameful unless I'm there. And then when I'm there, <laughs> I, the lilt goes up and everything. I'm yeah. one of those sympathetic accent people. So I really thought I was going to get my husband's accent, you know, just living with him. But nope, he's got mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it goes. But flattery will get you everywhere. So yeah, thank 100%, you for saying that. Yeah. So were you, did you have the travel bug as a little kid or what, what kind of travel-y things or what was your life like when you were little in England? You know, I guess I, part of the travel bug comes from coming from two different places in a way. Like I grew up in America until I was, you know, about seven years old. And um, I always thought that was really little until I had kids. And then I realized actually that's pretty old. You know, you've sort of formed a lot of your identity by then as well. And of course my mom's American. So I had this kind of, and my dad's English. So I kind of had this dual country, dual cultural influence, which I think, you know, sort of helped expand my horizons a little bit. One of the things I talk about a lot in travel is the way that we can kind of grow up and get stuck into the cliques, into the boxes in which we're born, right? And you think that, you know, the country that you're from or the school that you go to or the family that you're from, those values that those places give you are kind of set in stone. That's who you are. And I think sometimes what travel can do and what I love writing about travel is it can kind of blow apart those boxes and show you that actually there's lots of different ways to live. There's lots of different beliefs. There's lots of different value systems. And I think that's really beautiful. And it can kind of open your mind to, to maybe constructing some of your own identity and your own value system based on what your interests and your passions uh, and beliefs are personally, and not necessarily what's kind of given to you from the place that, that you're born. So I think that, I guess I had a little bit of a head start with that because uh, just from coming from these two places, um, but I didn't do a huge amount of travel as, as a kid, you know, just sort of usual stuff. But I, I was always someone that was dreaming of the mountains, dreaming of adventure. I did a bunch of hiking. That was something that I, I always loved. I would go to, to the Alps every summer uh, with my dad and, and do some hiking there as a big hiker. And, um, you know, I just sort of fell in love with that immersion into nature. And I suppose that was the thing that... Um, I really caught a bug with. And then in my 20s, I actually worked in the music industry in London in my 20s and music was my kind of first love. And I got to do a lot of traveling through that. They, we worked in a really kind of wild office and, and my boss decided to just every Christmas to shut down the office for a month and tell everyone to go off and have an adventure and work really hard for the other 11 months. But he, every, he would say, look, everyone, you know, get out there, do something crazy for a month. And uh, 
So me and my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, we would go and have these kind of backpacking trips, you know, and we would go to, we went to India, we went to Thailand, New Zealand and South Africa. And we would just have these kind of month away where we would just backpack and explore and go hiking and camping and all that other stuff. And I suppose that really gave me a, a taste for, um, for the traveling bug and for just that, that sense of being into a completely different culture, just being immersed in somewhere um, completely new and exciting, particularly places like India, you know, where you, you get off the plane and it's like, oh my God, you know, I've never, this is so different to what I'm used to. And, and that buzz just kind of stayed with me. Um, and then I left the music industry uh, when I was about 13. I did, I just did a really kind of just a right turn, just like a hard break in a right turn and uh, went into, into writing. My mom's a writer. I always kind of grew up writing and reading being a big part of, of our life. And, um, and I, you know, it was always someone that kind of wrote poetry and wrote stories and that kind of thing. And I suppose with music, I loved music, but I worked on the business side of it. And the part of it that I loved was the creativity and the working in the studio and that sort of thing. But I got more and more stuck into just doing the, the business side of it. And I decided that I wanted to be on the other side of the fence, right? Like I didn't want to just be the guy sitting in the, in the meetings. Like I would have to, we would go to these festivals and then I would, you know, I'd be with the bands and stuff and then they would go on stage and I'd be on the side going, oh man, this is the, you know, this is the best bit and I'm missing out, you know? And uh, so I decided that, you know, I really wanted to follow a kind of artistic creative path. And that path for me was always going to be writing. Like I loved music. I, I'm a drummer and I play a lot of music, but for me, I always felt like writing was how I can express myself best. You know, I think music is incredible because it has this emotional component to it, which really affects you on a subconscious level. And maybe it's the most powerful because of that. But with writing, you can be really precise. You know, with music, you're quite, you have to be quite vague in a way. And it's, you're just putting out a general feeling. But with, with writing, you can be very precise. And I suppose that's what attracted me to it as well, that I could really articulate thoughts and ideas that were important to me or interesting to me in a way that would hopefully, you know, in some small way, inspire people to think about that stuff or, or go visit that place. And so I kind of fell into travel writing after that, but uh, it was something I didn't mean to, to get into, but I'm, I'm happy I, I fell into it. It's a, it's a nice place to be. Well, first, before we go any further what an awesome boss you had <laughs> I know he's like an old he's an old school uh T Tim Clark and David Anton and they're like old school music industry from the 1960s you know managed T-Rex and and you know set up Island Records which signed Bob Marley and oh, yeah. just like kind of wild guys you know and so yeah i i really appreciate i really appreciate that but i don't, I don't know if i can get away with that month off every december now but i try to <laughs> island records was so important to me as a teenager oh really cool oh, yes. well all of the the labels especially anyone anyone coming out of you know the whole uk invasion brit pop and well way before that you know the 80s are my jam oh yeah nice yeah. Yeah, nice. you're, you're about ten years younger than me. I think I'm. I'm fifteen. Nineties are my jam. Yeah, yeah. Okay. A, yeah I, I kind of just missed the eighties, but I, I, the nineties were. I'm still stuck in the nineties musically, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that that happens to everybody, you know, especially because you were really immersed in it. So that makes yeah. sense. Formative years, vintage. I would say vintage years for music. There you go. 
So, okay, you say you fell into travel writing. Let's explore the minutia of how that actually happens because there are people, I'm one of them that, you know, when people say like, if you could get paid to do anything, what would it be? And I'd be like, travel writing, you know, why not? Well, that or just laying in bed and reading. That would be great too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, well, as soon as that becomes a job, I'm taking that one as yeah. well. So yeah, how did that happen? Fun story, actually. So I, you know, I started trying to write about other things like science and psychology. I had a degree in psychology. I was really interested in, in all that stuff. I read and wrote a lot about philosophy and stuff like that, but it wasn't really happening, you know? And then um, I was looking at story ideas and trying to come up with stuff. And I, I basically I'd given myself six months to, to try and, you know, get published and get like a freelance career off the ground, which is really a ridiculously short amount of time. It's very hard to get into that. And I was coming to the end of that, that period and I was sort of giving up. And then I, uh, the town, uh, the area where I lived in Brighton is part of, uh, well, it's right on the outskirts of the South Downs National Park, which is this beautiful area area of like rolling green hills quintessential england you know like 500 year old pubs and rolling sort of arable land and just a, a beautiful landscape and they just turned it into a national park right it's it's actually a unesco biosphere reserve as well because it's this relationship between the history and the people and the and the land itself and they turn it into a national park and there's a footpath that that goes from Eastbourne to Winchester. It's a hundred miles and it's been walked. It's called the South Downs way. And it's been walked for hundreds of years. Um, you know, drovers would use the high ground of the downs to kind of move their, their sheep and, 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 and stuff like that. And, and uh, people would walk it also as a pilgrimage path. They would come from the South coast all the way to Winchester cathedral. And because of that, all these like coaching inns, traveling inns and pubs, kind of popped up every sort of 10 miles along the trail. And many of them are still there and are like five or 600 years old, you know, these beautiful historic pubs. And so I thought, wouldn't it be cool to celebrate this, this new national park to walk the South Downs way as a hundred mile pub crawl? And so I pitched this idea to a lot of outdoor adventure magazines and kind of got my first big commission. And that was it. I set off in February, it was raining, it was freezing. I had my backpack on. And uh, walk the whole thing, and stopping off like breakfast, lunch, and dinner at every pub I could find on the way. And so I think it might be the world's longest pub crawl. I don't know. I say that, but certainly it was it was one of the most fun and adventurous, and you know, a great way to to experience that culture too. Because it's like you're stopping off at all these little tiny village pubs, you know, where you you walk in and like the dart stops mid air, and everyone turns around like who's a stranger in our pub, you know, and like an hour later you're sharing pints and hearing about, you know, the results of the local cricket team and who makes the best cream tea. So it's like this kind of beautiful insight into these little kind of pockets of life in this, this beautiful rural, uh, rural area and uh, lots of history and stuff along the way. So it was a great first job. And the thing with freelancing and travel writing is, you know, you sort of just need that like one or two good commissions and one or good publications in your portfolio. And then you can, then you can blag it from there. And as you're married to an English person, so you probably know the word black, but for those of people that don't, I know what my American friends don't, it's sort of, um, it's sort of like convincing people to do something in a friendly sort of way, but also in a little cheeky way. Like you might, if, if a bouncer at a club said to you, 
you know, oh, I'm sorry, there's no one else allowed in, then you would try and blag your way in anyway, right? And if you successfully did that and got into the club, then you blagged your way into the club. So I kind of blagged my way into travel writing. After that, I, I had this commission and I started pitching bigger publications. And then I, I basically got a job to write for the London Times. But they said to me, look, we love this idea. It was The idea was to do a a story about a galactic safari in Tenerife, like space and stars and everything was really big in the UK at that time. It was a really popular TV show about it. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool, like instead of just doing a safari where you're going to see animals or, or whatever, you're going on a cultural trip, you go on this galactic safari to experience the most beautiful stars, the most beautiful night skies in the world. And the island of Tenerife, which is a Spanish island, but it's off the coast of Africa, has the best stargazing, the most clearest night skies uh, in Europe. So it's um, there's a national park up there called Mount Titi, which is really high. It's usually above the clouds. Um, there's zero light pollution. So it has these incredible stars. And they love the idea, but they said, look, you're nowhere near experienced enough to write for us. So if you write it, I'll read it, but I can't guarantee that it'll get published. And I didn't have enough money to go to Tenerife by myself and, and do this. So I just, I phoned up the tourist board and I was like, I've got this commission from the Times. Can you, you know, can you get my flight? Can you put me up and, and talk them into it? I phoned up Brian May, the guitarist from Queen. Wait, stop. Wait, wait, wait. How does someone, just, you just <laughs> happen to know his phone number and you just call him up? Well, I, I pulled a favor on that one. Yeah, yeah my, my boss knew his manager. But I, what I found out was that he... Prior to joining Queen, he was actually in the middle of doing a PhD in astrophysics and he subsequently completed it. And he was studying in Tenerife. So he was actually up in the observatories in in, uh, Mount Tidi. And he was just involved with this project to make music that uh, kind of fuses together like actual recordings of the stars. So like the sonic sound that's coming from space and the sun and those sort of vibrations and mix it together with music so I knew he was involved with this music project and I knew that he had that history and I just I just pitched him for it and next thing you know I was I was interviewing Brian May I was out in Tenerife I was doing all this this crazy stuff and so I wrote the piece and they they liked it they published it and then after that I was just I'm Aaron Miller who, who writes for London Times and and, and uh, I was off so any tips if you do want to get into travel writing and we can get into that later if you want about the kind of ideas that work but you sometimes just have to go for it you sometimes just have to flag it a little bit believe in yourself come you know make that happen make those ideas happen those great stories happen and I think if you have a great story to tell then there's always a there's always a home for it well, as you know, the um, main theme of the podcast is about, you know, how the universe works and the word that seems to work for most people is serendipity and serendipity has come up on your show a bunch. And so I knew that it was, there was a kindredness there and already in your discussion about how it started, how it happened, there was a little bit of your, you exerting your will, but then there was a little bit of serendipity, which some people can kind of take as name dropping. I mean, if you get to drop the name Brian May, you do. But, <laughs> but, you know, when those things happen and those people come in to make things happen, that's the essence, you know, of this. We're all connected. The universe is pulling for you to make this happen, the serendipity of it all. And, you know, serendipity is just huge in travel in general. So I, I love that already, you know, you've, you've launched us into that. So how does a person who travels for their 
job, their career, look at planning travel versus letting the serendipity of travel happen? Yeah, it's a really good, it's a really good question. Um, you know, I love that kind of serendipity of travel, that stuff of just bumping into people. And I do think that that's often where you get the, the best experiences. But the, the truth of it is if you're doing travel writing professionally, you really have to follow the story. So a lot of that serendipity is, is taken out of it. And, and you try and create situations where you can, you have enough space for that to happen, to meet that person in the bar or to, to catch that sunset and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, to do travel writing professionally, you're having to find the stories that people want to publish. And the stories that people want to publish are, uh, have a big topical hook. And what I mean that is there's a reason why they want to publish it now. Mm. So there has to be a kind of why now about it. That's maybe the most important part of it. So you can't just go and write about anything. You know, I guess if you had your own blog or whatever, you can, you can maybe go and do that. But if you're writing for magazines and newspapers and places like that, or if you want to get a lot of work, you're really looking for ideas that, that have that kind of topical element, you know, what's new, what's just open, what's this, is there a big anniversary? Where's a destination people don't know about that that's important to visit for this year? I'm now trying to do a lot more stories around sort of regenerative travel, which is like, where is, you know, particularly post COVID, like where are destinations and communities and people that would benefit from travel, right? Like, as opposed to places that are kind of over-traveled already. And I'm trying to get this idea out there that, you know, as travel journalists and editors and stuff like that, we should be publishing stuff and pushing for stories that utilize the power of travel as a, as a positive force, as a force that kind of empowers local communities and that can help preserve uh, ecosystems and wildlife. You know, in Africa, for example, tourism may not be the long-term strategy, but if you speak to um, most of the big uh, wildlife charities, they are looking at tourism as as the essential component for um, safeguarding a lot of these wildlife populations for the next 20 30 40 years so you know i spoke to someone on the on the show that i spoke to is a conservationist called private moment amazing guy he works with mountain gorillas in rwanda and because they they needed to find a way to save mountain gorillas their numbers were plummeting they were on the brink of extinction he actually set up this whole kind of ecotourism, sustainable tourism infrastructure around taking tourists to see mountain gorillas in, in really small, sustainable numbers, and then using that money from that to feed into the local communities to provide them an alternative to destroying those forests and, you know, accidentally killing those gorillas when they're trying to trap and poach other animals. So by creating that industry that he was able to, you know, empower that community to to provide for themselves and their families and at the same time, you know, help safeguard the, the mountain gorilla whose numbers have sort of gone up and stabilized now a little bit. They're still in danger, but it's the trajectories in the right direction. So I think that, you know, stories like that are the travel that's important for me, but you're always, you're always going there with a story in mind. You're always going there with an idea of this is the story that I want to tell. And these are the different ways that I need to tell that story. These are the experiences I need to have. These are the people I need to speak to. These are the places I need to go. So I think, you know, ironically, there's a lot less serendipity in, in, in that um, than there would be if you're just kind of backpacking around. But I think that it's also important to make space for it because the stuff that you don't expect is oftentimes the best stuff of all. Can you give an example of that? You know, I just think it's it's little things. Like, 
I did this story about visiting this town, uh, kind of rural Berber community outside of Morocco in a place called Demnat in the foothills of the Atlas Mountains. And I was doing a story about a, a kind of trip that was helping these Berber communities in a similar way. You would go and visit people and have, you know, go in for lunch and learn about their culture. And some of that's all kind of set up and planned. It's like, you know, sort of real people and they're involved with kind of setting up and organizing the tour and they sort of absolutely benefit from it. But some of it's sort of preordained. But then we were, we we're just driving around. I had this amazing guide, a Berber guide called Hussein Alali, amazing, beautiful guy. And uh, we're just driving around and he kind of just slams on the brakes and he's like, oh my God, you are so lucky. And then we saw across the field, there's this thing called a Festival Fantasia, which is this incredible display of horsemanship that the Berber communities do. Yeah. And there are places that they do it for the tourists, but this is like way out in the rural areas. And, and it's the real deal. And so all these different villages kind of compete with each other. And what they do is they line up their horses, they decorate their horses with all this kind of beautiful regalia. They put on these beautiful white robes and they have these kind of muskets. They've been doing this for like, you know, a couple hundred years and they have these muskets. And what they do is they charge down this huge field, this like kind of barren red dusty field. And the idea is that they, they have to charge in unison and then all fire their musket at the same time. And they're judged for like how beautiful they look, how, how simultaneously they work. And it's a really big deal. Like water is scarce in this part of the world, but the horses are like washed twice a day you know, <laughs> because it's so important to them. And whichever village wins gets the kind of bragging rights for the year. So, you know, I got to go and watch something like that, which was this incredible experience you know there's no tourists around you're just you're just really right in amongst this community that you know that normally wouldn't have a visitor there and you know it's things like that that you don't expect you couldn't you could never plan for something like that because it's real right it's like 100 percent real but you know something like that i would say is is one of the most beautiful and amazing things that could happen you know so i walked this trip called the kamana koda which is like this japanese pilgrimage path through the key mountains in Japan. And I was writing about, I was writing about the, the trek. I was the first journalist to do it on their own. Normally you have to do the guided tour, but I, I was able to do it on my own. And I was writing about this religion called Shigendo, which kind of only exists in these mountains. And the idea of Shigendo is that it kind of fuses Buddhist enlightenment with traditional uh, Japanese Shintoism, nature worship. And it holds that enlightenment is not to be found through going inwards. Enlightenment is, is found through immersion in the natural world around you, physical exertion and immersion in the natural world. And the, you know, the greatest practitioners of Shigendo, they perform these feats, like you might have seen them, but they can, they can meditate under these freezing waterfalls. They have this waterfall at the end of this pilgrimage called the Nachiotaki and meditate under these freezing waterfalls in winter for up to 45 minutes. And, and you and I, you know, we'd freeze to death and have hypothermia after a few minutes, yeah. but they can, they can regulate their, their body temperature. And, you know, I didn't expect to meet one of those guys, but right at the end, I was just kind of hanging around this temple and this, this kind of man came up and asked me if I was okay. And it turns out he was one of the monks and his name was Raya Takagi. And he really didn't speak much English, but I was able to kind of ask him a few questions and, and meet him. 
And, you know, legend has it that these Shigendo practitioners, there's stuff in all these ancient texts going back a thousand years, that this, that their immersion in the world gave them these superpowers. If you've ever watched a Kung Fu movie where people are like flying up buildings and flying up trees, those are based on those ancient myths of the Shigendo monks. And, and so I asked him, I was like, so what's your superpower? You know, like what had, what has, what have you been granted? And he kind of looked at me and he said, I can see inside people's hearts and know how to help them. And I thought, what a beautiful superpower that is. And so I think it's meeting people like that. It's stumbling across crazy things that you would never even know existed that, that really make travel so special and memorable. Totally agree. And about the superpower thing. So as you know, tangents are what we're all about. So here we go. I normally kind of save a lot of the book kind of talk for the end, unless it just comes up naturally. Well, now it's come up. So have you read the book, The Art of Hearing Heartbeats? No, I've never heard of that. Okay. So I think that you will enjoy it and you'll think of that guy very much. Oh, amazing. Okay. Yeah. I'll definitely check that out. And um, I put all of the books that come up during the episode in the show notes. But if you're like all excited to read it now, I can always send it to you as soon as we hang up. Yeah, do that. Um, I'll check out the show notes as well, of course. But yeah, definitely. But besides that. But do you want to hear the most serendipitous, crazy moment of my life? Yes. That's what we're here for. It's, it's a, it's a crazy story. Um, So I was, backpacking around Thailand. It's one of these trips I did, you know, when I had that month off with my uh, girlfriend, would-be wife. And we had this plan to, I was really into rock climbing at the time. We're both into it. And there was a, we wanted to go to this place called Tonsai, which is famous for rock climbing. It has these beautiful like limestone cliffs coming out of the sea. Say the name again Uh, one more time, please. Tonsai, it's near Ralai Beach, right? Which is in the Krabi province of of Thailand. And it's a little bit like the beach, you know, the book film, because uh, Tonsai, you have to kind of, there's no, I mean, it's an island anyway, there's no roads to it, but you, you get dropped off at one beach and then you have to like hike over the jungle to kind of find this secret beach. But anyway, we were on the ferry. We didn't know about this place. We're on the ferry. We were planning to go to this island called Kopipi, which is like a really beautiful island. And we're on the ferry and we're talking about rock climbing with a couple of people we met. And then they told us about this place, about Tonsai. Oh, there's this secret beach. It's incredible. The rock climbing is the best in the world. No one knows about it. You should come. And uh, so we said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll go and do that. We'll, we'll come with you. And instead of going to Kopipi, we jumped off the beach at Tonsai and then at, at Raleigh Beach. And then at Raleigh Beach, we were looking for a place to stay and all the, all the places were booked up. We were really bummed out. So we had to go over to, to Tonsai. And, and then we were looking for these little, they had all these beautiful kind of huts on the beach and we were going to try and stay in one of those. Everything was booked out. We had to walk like a mile up this mountain and we were really bummed about that. And then on Christmas day, we were both, not eating meat, but uh, on Christmas day, they'd gone to this big kind of extravagance of putting this turkey on. And so my wife was like, you know, I just feel I have to have a bite of this turkey. So she had, a, you know, just to make them feel okay. So she had a bite of this turkey and we got food poisoning. So we had to cancel our scuba diving the next day. Oh, wow. The next day, the huge tsunami of 2004 hit. Oh. So we were on the, on the beach there and if we'd gone to Kopipi, almost everyone on that island was wiped out. Yeah. 
if we'd been to Raleigh Beach, that was the beach that they made the, the Ewan McGregor film about it. And almost everyone on that beach was wiped out. If we'd stayed on the, if we'd got one of those huts on the beach on Tonside, right. all of those were completely destroyed. The only one that was really left was this one up the mountain that we were forced to go to. And if she hadn't got food poisoning, we would have gone out uh, scuba diving the next day. And obviously everyone that went out scuba diving that day didn't come back. And then, so I had a choice as well that day to, to uh, I went climbing, but while she was not feeling well, I went out climbing and met my Thai buddy who I was climbing with at the time. And he said, where do you want to go? Do you want to go to this, this place that was called, you know, Wall of the, Wall of the Flies, I think, or Wall of the Ties, and this other place called Eagle Wall. And I was like, I don't know, let's just, let's just go to that wall place. And um, the, everyone that was climbing on the Eagle Wall that day was right next to the beach, got hit by the tsunami and the wall of the ties was on this huge peninsula out to sea and uh and everyone on that one survived so i was actually climbing out on a peninsula as the tsunami rolled in underneath me and, and you could see it coming in yeah three sets of waves underneath me and it totally destroyed the beach and all the hotels and i mean it was it was unbelievable and at the time i didn't really know how devastating it was in terms of human life and I think sometimes you can go into a, a kind of disbelieving state of mind, but there was a lot of physical destruction. Like the boats were, all the fish, high fishing boats were destroyed and in the trees, all the hotels were destroyed, all the shacks were destroyed. I couldn't get back to Jill because, you know, we were all too scared. There was, it didn't come in just one wave. It came in these sets and we didn't know when there was going to be another set. But eventually I ran across the beach and climbed over the jungle and, and saw the destruction on the beach and ran up the hill and got to our hut and obviously terrified at this point that that she'd come looking for me or felt better and went down to the beach or something like that right. and she wasn't there and I was like oh my god and I kind of tore into the room and I was looking around and then I just found this one little note that said on top of the mountain and I ran up bushwhacking through these trees, ran up to the top of the mountain and, you know, I was just sort of shouting for her. And then I actually found a group of like 20 or 30 people. She kind of gathered everyone together from this place we were staying and they all ran to the top of the mountain and, and found her. And she thought that, you know, she thought I was probably uh, badly hurt at least or something. And, and so uh, that was, you know, obviously a really emotional reunion. Um, but when I reflect back on that, on every decision that was made to, to get off that ferry because we happened to meet those people, that we didn't get the hotel in Raleigh Beach, that we didn't get the, the hut on the beach, that, I, that Jill got food poisoning, we didn't go scuba diving, and that I chose one place over another, 50-50. And all those things had to happen to survive that. And it kind of makes you really aware of how fleeting and precious life is because you have no inclination that something like that is going to happen and when it happens and that moment can happen all the time and, and uh, you know I think that can be something quite scary to wrap your head around but I think if you can wrap your head around it even just a little bit it can liberate you a little bit to really follow the life that you want to follow and do what's really important to you and try and understand what's really important in life and it was soon after that that I actually quit the music industry and decided to try and be a writer. So, you know, some, some good came from it. So I'm sure you were in shock for a while. Absolutely, yeah. How long do you think it took you to wrap your head around all that? I, 
years. And honestly, like, I think I, first of all, didn't really accept it. We stuck around um, for like 10 days, I think, to try and help rebuild some of it. Um, a, a lot of the tourists left, um, but some of us stayed. And, and I think during that time, I was really in kind of disbelief about what had happened, the scale of what had happened. We had no connection to the outside world, really. And so we're just hearing kind of rumors and stuff, but there was something in your, in my brain anyway, that was saying this couldn't have happened. This isn't like an impossible thing. This doesn't, this doesn't happen. You know, this is something you read about in the news. So that was the sort of first reaction. And then I became quite uh, obsessed with this idea of death and what it meant. And, you know, did a lot of reading like about kind of Buddhist conceptions of death and other ideas and a lot of trying to think about it. And I don't, I guess I came to the conclusion that I don't know if you can truly accept the reality of death as a possible imminent thing. You know, it's, it's too hard for me anyway to kind of get on with your life with, with that reality. But if you can hold on to just a little bit of that idea of impermanence, that, that what, you know, that everything changes, that things go away, that nothing's forever, then you can really appreciate each one of those fleeting moments. You know, the, the friends you have now, they might be friends forever, but, um, you know, the, the friends you have at high school aren't the friends that you have at, at, you know, in your 20s and aren't necessarily the friends you have in your 40s. So appreciate, appreciate those friends, appreciate those moments. You know, I have kids and so it's like, it's always sad to, in some ways, to see them grow up and change to that next age, you know, and then it's always great to welcome that, that new person in a way too, but appreciate that, appreciate this moment now, this age now no matter how tiring it is sometimes or, or you know, difficult, but it, appreciate it because it will be gone. Um, and, and that's the same for, for every moment. And actually, I did a story recently on my podcast about this guy who'd walked up this, this pilgrimage uh, path and kind of came to some of the same realizations. It was incredibly hard, but he kind of came to the same realization. He actually saw this this big kind of almost like a swarm of dragonflies, thousands of dragonflies. He kind of came into this field and he was suddenly surrounded by them. And in that moment, he was suddenly like, you know, the, this is, this is beautiful and it will never happen again. I'll never be in this moment, like surrounded by these dragonflies ever again. And this, this experience of beauty, this moment, this like precise feeling I'll never have again. And so, it's it's so beautiful because of that and but there's there's dragonflies everywhere there's dragonflies in every single moment of our day and we just have to kind of open our eyes to to see them and to recognize them and so i suppose that's the lesson that i learned from it too is just to try and be try and be grateful you know i think gratitude is a huge hack in life to try and um you know if you're grateful if you're truly present, I think you're truly grateful because you, you're really aware of, of how beautiful this moment is, even when it's sometimes really, really hard. And of course, you can't hold on to that forever. I'm human, right? I don't walk around in this state of perpetual Zen going how beautiful this moment is. I'm constantly dragged out of that. I'm constantly going through stress and worry. I'm constantly forgetting that. Um, that's what it is to be human, right? But I think that if you can just try to bring yourself back once in a while and appreciate it, appreciate this amazing world. You know, that's one of the reasons why I set up my podcast was to really celebrate just the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet, to appreciate how amazing this planet is. We're constantly bombarded with 
bad news. Um, we're constantly bombarded with everything that's wrong, but there's a ton of stuff that's right too, that's amazing and beautiful too. And I think that you don't just change the world by reporting on what's wrong and where the problems are. You also change it by reporting on what's right and empowering people that people are doing good, they're making a difference. And, and there is this incredible world out there waiting for you to explore it and make your mark on it. And I think that's that's what I try and, and, and share on, on the show and in, in my writing too. Well, amen. And that's probably why I love your, your podcast. Oh, thank you. So we'll get back to travel in just a second, but we'll go through the serendipity of how I found you. Oh, great. Okay. So my preferred app is CastBox. Mm-hmm. You know, none of them are perfect, but they do the best of getting my show notes to read right and look right. So, and they have the pictures. Oh, I know that one. Yeah. So, I hate it when they just like take all the formatting away and just stick it on one giant yeah. blog. Yeah. And I'm always ragging Apple for that because they're the worst of that. So anyway, I don't know what happened. Oh, I know what happened. Uh, Dak Shepard's podcast, the armchair expert left all other apps and went to Spotify but I had forgotten that. And so I opened up my cast box and I was looking for armchair expert and it was gone, but yours came up. <laughs> I think I've hijacked quite a few of his listeners by accident. <laughs> I didn't really consider that. Yeah. But yeah, it's a bit sneaky. And I, and I thought, well, I like travel. Well, let's give a listen. And I heard that I'm like, okay, he's English. I was like, okay, cool. And then I started digging into you and I was like, yeah. So I just got hooked immediately. And I, unfortunately I listened to too many right away. And so now they're all blurring and I have to redo it, but <laughs> that's fine. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And, you know, I think that sometimes with good stories, particularly travel stories, there is a tendency to talk about everything that went wrong on someone's trip, as opposed to all the beautiful moments, the butterflies, the dragonflies, the being saved from a natural disaster, whatever, you know, they want to talk about the hassles and the luggage loss and all that crap. I'm like, don't focus on that, you know? So I really appreciate that you, you you're not, you're not, you know, candy coating it, but you're talking about what's really important. Well, I don't think you, I mean, certainly I don't come back from a trip and go and sit in the pub with my mates and be like, let me tell you about the airport. Let let me tell you about my eight hour flight. You know, I think that you come back and you you talk about those amazing moments. And sometimes you have to work for that, right? Like not all travel is bliss or easy. Sometimes it does go wrong. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes that feeling of culture shock, at least until you get used to it, is very hard for people as well. But but I don't. I think that a lot of that ends up just disappearing in your memory and what you carry with you forever. I always talk about this idea of like those peak moments that you have. It can be travel, or it can be other periods of your life. Those moments that really affect you deeply. Those moments of extreme awe and wonder or gratitude. That those moments are the ones that kind of shape you. There. That those are the ones that you kind of carry with you and become part of you. And so. You know, those are the, that's kind of what I seek out. I call myself a wanderist sometimes. Like, you know, like if you're a collector of things, you're like a, it always, the word always ends with ist, right. right? Like, you know, you're a botanist, right? And so I call myself a wanderist, right? Because I'm trying to collect those moments of wonder and awe. I'm trying to travel to, to find those moments. And sometimes those moments are really fleeting. Sometimes those moments are just that second when the cloud breaks through when the sun breaks through the clouds in just the right way 
and you and it lights up the Grand Canyon or at the moment when the, the storm blows over in the distance and you're kind of huddled in your tent and you feel that power and energy and you suddenly get how small and you know and insignificant you are at that moment looking up at the stars and those moments are the ones I try and I seek out and try and collect and make a part of me and sometimes you do have to work for that and you know coming back to travel writing those are the moments that you're looking to share and write about as well. And that's what I try and do the show. It's what I try and do with writing as well, because I think that, you know, I always quote Alfred Hitchcock who said that drama is life with all the boring bits taken out. <laughs> so I think if you want to write well about travel or maybe about anything, you need to take out those boring bits and, you know, take out the four hours you're rattling along in the back of a Jeep, looking for wildlife on your safari, you know, take all that out and take us straight to the moment when the when you're looking in the lion's eyes you know that's the moment that matters that four hours that will fade from your memory and it doesn't matter but take us right to that moment and i think that when you share that sort of stuff i think that you hopefully in a small way inspire other people to look for their other those other moments in their life and to not let those moments pass them by but to notice them and uh, to be grateful for them and that's for me what it's all about well, yeah, the podcast is super inspiring. And how did that come about? Like, was there someone or something that really propelled you into doing the podcast? Well, I guess in part, I wanted to combine like my past with music and, and working with musicians and messing around in studios and stuff with telling travel and adventure stories. In part, I got fed up with being confined by the formats of the publications I was working for. You know, you can go on a trip and you have... 2000 words to write for this this big trip and it's maybe it's not enough and the kind of things that you can include in that are dictated to some extent by the by the sort of style of that place or the demographics they have and and i wanted to do something that was a little deeper maybe a little um a little freer and what i noticed was that you know the, the kind of podcasts i love things like radio lab ted radio hour those documentary podcasts that mix music and soundtracks and cinematic effects and like infield sounds and nature with storytelling and with tightly edited storytelling you know that's that's kind of what attracted me it was like can i can i create a show that utilizes like the full power of the medium so i'm bringing in music i'm bringing in sound design and i'm i'm editing it in such a way so like i as you know i kind of intersperse the monologue from the guests, which is tightly edited with like stuff from me. So hopefully what we create is a continuous story, uninterrupted story that hopefully takes you away and immerses you in that, in that place, in that adventure. And, and I, it was kind of a challenge to begin with. And I didn't realize how long it would take and what a big production it would be. It takes a hell of a lot of work to oh, do that. Does, yep. Yeah. And so and so I just started it and it was a little bit of serendipity because I, I'd been talking about it for two years and then, uh, you know, COVID hit and I was like, this is, you know, my travel died and this was my, a good opportunity to do this, not just because I suddenly had time on my hands, but also because I really felt like we all needed that escape. You know, we all needed to have that virtual escape when we're kind of stuck in lockdown and, and, and so I could kind of try and provide that in a small way and, and, and hopefully it would resonate with people. And so it was good timing, you know, it kind of took off and, and, uh, and I just love 
telling stories like that now. I think it's a really beautiful way to tell stories. I think it's a really a powerful way to tell stories because you get that emotional sense with the music. I think that can do that kind of emotional cueing that like cinema does as well, where it has the soundtrack. But also I love podcasts because it's someone whispering in your ear, someone telling you a story in your ear, and it's quite intimate for that, you know, whereas the written word can be quite faceless. But if someone's just telling you that story directly in your ear, that's, that's a much more uh, intimate experience, I guess, and, and, um, and just a really exciting way to tell, to tell these stories. So, yeah, I'm super, super psyched that I, I got to do it. Yeah, it's awesome. So are you traveling anymore now that, you know, restrictions have changed? Yeah, little bits and pieces. I have some trips coming up and I, I always I always try and travel. I live in Colorado, so we're always like off hiking and well, you live in Colorado too, so you know how amazing it is out here. But it's uh, it, it's a, there's so much to explore here on our doorstep. We had it pretty lucky, I feel like, during the whole COVID thing because you know we were always able to get out and you know, go camping or go hiking. And that's that's for me just a, such a beautiful thing to do starting to travel a, a bit again but but also just really focused on on the show now and, and trying to tell stories that way and um it's you know i i miss travel but it's also quite nice for me to be home for an extended period with my family and my kids which is uh kind of showed me that um you know it's 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 nice to travel but sometimes it's also nice to know where your home is and, and yeah. to come home and appreciate that too so how do you choose the places that you go to either by yourself or just, you know, with adults versus taking the kids? I drag the kids on almost everything. You know, I've dragged them on big road trips through Patagonia. I took them on a 10 day trip through Utah recently for a piece I wrote. Um, you know, we've done Costa Rica and all, and all sorts of places all over America. So I try and, I try and take them everywhere. I'm a big believer that that's a really important part of a kid's education. We can't all do that with our kids. Obviously and there's different levels that different people can do it. I'm super lucky to be able to, to do quite a bit of that. But, um, you know, I think that going back to that idea of opening people's eyes to the, to, you know, to just a huge variety of cultures and people in the world and that, you know, we can, we can kind of choose ourselves through this. We're not fixed into a particular way of life. We don't all have to, you know, go to college, get a job. I mean, I think that that paradigm is sort of dying anyway, but like, you know, go to college, get a job, work your entire life, and then spend the last 10 years of your life, um, you know, doing what you want. There's a great quote, actually. I, I interviewed this guy called Ash Dykes, who's the first guy to walk the entire length of the Yangtze River in China, 4,000 miles. And uh, really amazing story and guy but his favorite quote was um i can't remember who it's by i'm really sorry but it's and i'm going to sort of have to paraphrase it but it's it's the biggest mistake you can make in life is not doing what you want now on the bet you can buy yourself the freedom to do it later and i'm a real big believer in that it's a beautiful quote to to live by in some ways because there's no guarantee that you will do it in the future. There's no guarantee of what life will bring you. So I think that, you know, if you're passionate about something, if you want to do something, you know, working towards making that happen now is, is a really good strategy because if it's important to you, if it's, if it's part of what makes your life meaningful, it doesn't matter if all your friends and family think it's not what you should be doing. If you think it's what you should be doing, if you really want this more than anything, then don't, don't make that bet 
that you're going to be able to buy yourself the freedom to do it in 20 years because you might not go for it now. Right. You might not be around. The uh, planet might not be around. You don't know. I mean, or just that you'll change, right? Like, you know, that your, your, and also your wishes will change. Like if you, you know, and there's different windows for life too. Like I think that, you know, if in your twenties, there's, there's a window where before you have kids or, or whatever, you know, that, that you can take off and do something like that, like right. take off for three months. And it, you know, it may feel like you can't because you have to kind of get on with your career, but if you do that, that, that might influence, you know, that might change you and influence what your career is or what you can bring to your career. So I think that in some ways doing that stuff early or making that stuff happen when you have those opportunities can be really beneficial because, you know, you'll get to later in your life and, and you'll want to do it in a different way. And so you won't have had that experience that, that will affect and change you and, 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 you know, alter the course of your life in some small way, but maybe in a profound way too. I think a lot of times travel can have a profound impact on, on people's lives and and, uh, and there's nothing wrong with doing you know not following the prescribed path you know if that prescribed path is what you want to do and that's in your heart 100% go for it but if it's not that's okay too you know you can follow your own path and a lot of people are and that's and that's fine too so you grew up till you were 7 8 here in the states and then you went to England and then how old were you when you came back? I came back uh, in my late 30s. I was about 36 when I came back. And you were dual citizen? Yes. Yeah. So it was super easy. I didn't have to go through any of that red tape. And uh, well, what brought you back and how did you pick Colorado? A little bit of that doing a crazy thing, like doing what's important to you. You know, I wanted to get out of London. I'd lived in London for 10 years. And I think like it's great fun to live in a big city for a while and, and have that fun. But I didn't want to live in a big city forever. I've kind of done it, you know, and it can be a stressful place and a busy place. Um, and then kind of moved out to the countryside. We had a, our first child. And so we had a little one-year-old. We were just kind of did that, like, let's escape to the country. We lived in like a little tiny cottage in the middle of nowhere. And then I kind of got there and I was, it was like, I was like going 70 miles an hour and then hitting a brick wall. And suddenly you're like going zero miles an hour. And it was, it was kind of fun, but when like the village bake sale came around for the second year, I was like, God damn, I got to get out of here or, you know, this is going to be the rest of my life. And it's going back to those windows. I was like, look, the kids are young enough, you know, that we're, we still have that opportunity. We're not tied to any place. I've always, always wanted to live in the mountains. I've always dreamed of living somewhere that I could just take off and go hiking or skiing or whatever. And I kind of just had the sense, look, it's now or never. And so we uh, just did a crazy thing. We just kind of rented an Airbnb and uh, turned up with like two kids, babies basically, and eight bags, jumped into the, you know, Airbnb. We were going to stay for a year and just kind of built a life and a career here. I ended up covering kind of North American stuff for the British press. So that, that worked out, but it changed my life. And, I, you know, it all started with a crazy idea. And looking back, if I had known everything, that was all the difficulties that would come from that move and the consequences of it. I probably wouldn't have done it to be honest with you, but I'm so pleased I, I did. And so sometimes maybe, you know, not knowing in that moment how mad that decision is can, you know, can empower you to just go ahead and do it anyway. And, and uh, you know, it's one of the best things I've done. Of course we miss, 
friends and family and stuff like that. But that just waking up and seeing the mountains every day is still my dream. And I never take it for granted. Yeah. The view never gets old here for sure. No, definitely. So did you pick, I mean, you could have picked anywhere with mountains. How did you pick Colorado or Louisville? Well, funnily enough, I had been in Boulder 10 years previously when I was working in the music industry and I was there with a band and I just, and I'd gone all around the States and I, but I got to Boulder and I just had this, I'm, I think I'm going to live here one day. I just, I had this weird sense of like being home and oh, it was like I have felt sort that. of deja vu. Yep. And I was like, God, I think I'm going to live here. It's really weird. Like I was only there for like two days. So when we were thinking it, when we were talking about it, I was like, we should just go to Boulder. I, you know, I just, I, I never forgot that. And I was like, it's amazing there. And then I saw how much property prices cost in Boulder. So we moved like, you know, 20 miles outside. I was pretty close. <laughs> well, that's awesome. So you know how when someone finds out that you're a doctor, everyone asks them for unpaid for medical advice? <laughs> I often think I wish I had a close friend that was a doctor, right. especially in America. Yes. You know? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I bet that you get that same treatment though, that everyone's always asking you, where should I go? Where should I stay when I go to this place? Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. A little bit. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's obviously very subjective, but I've got some sort of favorite stuff I've done and I, I always try and recommend that, but it, it, I guess it really depends on what, who you are and what you want to do and what you want to experience. And that, that brings me back to one of the books I wanted to tell you about. So you know, I see people all the time. I, I'm part of this travel community on Facebook and they ask stuff like, you know, I've got two weeks off in October. Where should I go? I'm like, that's a ridiculous question. I don't know you. I don't know what you like. <laughs> you know, I, I can't answer that. Right. But when I was saying about the art of hearing heartbeats, I was thinking of another book to ask you about too. And then I got you know distracted. It's called The Little French Bookshop. I don't know it. No, sorry. The little Paris bookshop. And um, it's by, I think, Nina George. And because when you said about his superpower. Yeah. There's a little bit of magical realism in this book where the bookseller actually can tell what book the person needs, not necessarily what they want. Oh, I love that concept. That's great. And I used to work in a bookstore and that I was like, oh, I wish I had that. I think, I think it comes from a desire to want to be able to give them that book, you know, and it was a, a really good book, you know, fun little insights about Paris and stuff like that. So that's another one that I can recommend to you. I love that. I love that idea. And it's true, isn't it? I guess that comes back to what you're saying. It's almost like there's different experiences or wisdom that you need at different points in your life right and you know I think that maybe that's the same with travel right I don't I don't know but probably the trip that you need to do when you're you know 18 or 21 is definitely not the trip you need to do when you're 40 something and but they all give you something different I wish I that would be cool I I would aspire to be like that little magic bookshop in Paris for travel but I sadly I'm I'm not there yet (laughs) Um, so what travel books can you recommend to our listeners you know I think it'd be fair to recommend some of the stuff that I've done on the show because I get to read a lot of cool stuff from uh, from guests and things like that one uh one of my favorite books recently was um a book called Signs of Life, which I did an episode about. And it's about a doctor who worked in an emergency room in London and loved his job, but decided that, you know, 
that he wanted to have sort of like one big last adventure and and also to find out about how medicine works around the world so he ended up he kind of he literally cycled away from his hospital with a bike full of equipment and didn't come back for six years he cycled you know 60,000 miles around the whole world six continents aside from antarctica and you know most of the time just kind of camping out wild very little budget and he would stop at like medical clinics and volunteer and you know refugee clinics and all that sort of stuff along the way and trying to find out about health and medicine and you know what are the real causes of that not just the disease causes in the body but the cultural and societal causes for it too poverty and politics and all that great story great read and really really funny guy so i would recommend that book i just interviewed it's uh, not really a travel book but i just interviewed a biologist called doug chadwick who's a national geographic wildlife biologist and he was telling this story about tracking gobi grizzlies in the gobi desert and no one even knew there was such a thing as a grizzly bear in the Gobi Desert, but he like discovered this myth of these, these grizzlies that somehow survive in the Gobi Desert and kind of tracked them down. And there's only like 30 left in the wild and he became obsessed and became one of the passions of his life to try and study them and help them survive and figure it out. But his latest book is called Four Fifths of Grizzly. He's obsessed with grizzly bears, right? And the, what it's really about is that the different kind of, um, elements that make up who we are. And if we really can be considered an individual or if we can be considered more in some ways what he calls like a symbiont, you know, a, almost like an ecosystem to ourselves. And so he has all these incredible ideas. Like he's called Four Fifths of Grizzly because 80% of our DNA we share with grizzly bears. Yes. Like 20, you know, 20% we share with wine grapes. You know, we share 40% or something like that with most insects. So, um, there's this idea that like wrapped into our DNA is every living thing on earth. And that's part of the code of who we are. But then within our body itself, you know, we have bacteria in our gut that we can't survive without. We have, you know, bacteria in our skin that we can't survive without. And it goes to, through to like the food we eat, each one of those, like the, he talks about a strawberry, like the strawberry you eat, the flavor actually comes from the interaction of different bacteria in the strawberry with bacteria in your mouth. So it's like, it's this kind of beautiful idea that we really can't be considered alive outside of all the interconnected relationships we have with, you know, a multitude of different organisms, essentially every other organism on earth not just big ones and obvious relationships, but also like the microscopic ones too. And um, amazing imagery throughout it, amazing books. So I definitely recommend those two books. But yeah, I'm lucky to, to interview a lot of travel authors. And, um, you know, if you do check out the show, there's there's like, there's just a ton of great ideas for adventure stories there too. So what was a travel book that you read and then you went, yes, that person nailed it about that place. I've been there. I know exactly what they're saying. That's a really, uh, that's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, I talked about that already, but the, the guy that did this pilgrimage called the Shikoku pilgrimage and had the dragonflies moment, I thought he captured Japan really well. And also the difficulty of kind of flitting in between and out that moment. He's called Paul Barrick. And uh, he also had a Kung Fu battle on top of a, a mountaintop temple with a monk. So that's pretty cool too. A really funny guy. 
And uh, yeah, his book is called, uh, uh, it's called Fighting Monks. It's a really hilarious book. Uh, but, you know, it's tricky. I mean, I think I grew up reading a lot of mountaineering books like Joe Simpson and, um, you know, Annapurna and, and uh, you know, the, the Beckoning Air, Thin Beckoning Air, I can't remember, but, you know, all these great books, Into the Wild. You know, I, I loved stories of adventure like that. And it just was something that always inspired me to, just to think of these people that were leave, living these extraordinary lives outside of the boxes of modern life that we, that we found ourselves in and that I found myself in at that time too, of like school, university, job, career. And uh, that's what kind of we were all told to do and what my friends were doing. And I was reading these books about these people that were traveling the world and going on these insane adventures. And I just thought, this is amazing. How did they, how did they figure that out? And, it took me a while to figure it out, but and I guess I'm still figuring it out in some ways, but it's, uh, it, I guess that reading those sorts of adventure mountaineering type books was always like an insight into um, different ways of living your life and seeing the world and the value you could get from that. Yeah. And, you know, some people just really have a way of transporting you. I think you do yeah. a job of that and then, you know, uh, give you a really good sense of place. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Bryson's a note, notes from a small island. Oh my god, I love that England, book. So <laughs> that guy is a, honestly that guy's a genius. Like I don't know, I mean he he got England so down. And if you know both cultures, it's the funniest book you'll ever read. But another book of his that I love that most people don't like is A Short History of Nearly Everything. I love which that is book. a science book. I absolutely love that book. Yeah, and anyone that can make like you know, a scientific table, hilarious, is like a great writer for me, you know? Have you read Home? No, I haven't oh, read Home. his book called Home is so great. We're at home or whatever, because you know how sometimes in England it's called one thing and here it's something else. But yeah, I mean, you know, he stopped traveling and he just started putzing around his house and going, <laughs> you know, why is that that way? And who, yeah. you know, why is it called that? And then you would research it and it's just brilliant. Like everything yeah. he does is brilliant, but he is brilliant, but yeah. he gets He's a special writer. He gets that sense of place so well. Um, and going back to into the wild, um, I, cause you know, I used to live in Atlanta. I actually worked with some people who went to school with, now I've just lost his name. Um, I've lost it too. I, uh, you know who I mean? Yeah, yeah, it'll come back to me. Yeah. I, I love that book. Yeah, they went yeah. to school with him at Emory. And um, I'm finally getting to go to Alaska in two weeks. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Whereabouts are you going? What are you doing? Well, we have an RV and we're just going to tool around. Nice. In that whole Alaska. Everyone's saying Alaska is changing and it's not going to be the same way due to climate change or anything. And so it's like, see it now, like you're saying. So we're just going to see, but we're going to go basically from Anchorage up to Denali, to Fairbanks, and then down to Seward. I'm not sure how they pronounce it. The English mm-hmm. way would be Seward. And then back up to Anchorage to return the RV and fly home. Beautiful trip. Amazing. And you've been, yeah. right? I've been, but I did a kind of crazy once in a lifetime thing there where there was a, there was a new, like it's called the Sheldon Chalet. And it basically it used to be like this kind of mountain hut that, um, this aviation, Alaskan aviation kind of legendary pilot bought back in the 60s and back in the 20s, I think, and homesteaded it. 
and it's in the middle, it's on a nunatak, so it's kind of like a rocky outcrop in the, that pops out of the roof glacier, surrounded by this amphitheater of huge peaks, including the east face of Denali, and it's in the middle of it. And they, there's still a mountain hut there, but they also built this like hotel, not, not a hotel, it's like a three-room kind of chalet that you can stay in. And it's like a crazy place. You have to land on this on the glacier on a plane and you have to kind of hike up. And it's pretty luxury, right? It's a bit like a, it looks like a kind of James, you know, a James Bond villain, evil lair, you know, in the mountains or something like that. But, oh my God, it was the most beautiful place, the most beautiful mountains I've ever seen in my life. And when you're flying over to get there, I've never seen anything like it. Just like this unbelievable stretch of just pure white sparkling mountains and wildness as far as you can see and there are a few places in america where you get that where you, and you don't get that in the uk that sense of space right like there's still so much untamed land and, and alaska has that feeling of course and i just you know i kind of wanted to just like jump out and just walk into it you know so i think it'll be a great trip it's just such a huge country and it has that special power about it but if you do get an opportunity to to do one of these i think you can go to the a flight and you can actually book to stay in the, in the mountain not the not the hotel i think it's free if you book it but it's the most beautiful place in the world it's called the don sheldon amphitheater is the is the kind of amphitheater of peaks and it's the roof glacier and it's like the most beautiful place in the world but i think wherever you go in alaska you're gonna find that hit of vast nature you know not just nature just like vast humbling oh my god nature um so yeah i'm jealous you have a great trip yeah yeah i'm i'm so excited um i also want to tell you about another book that i think would be interesting if you've read it called geography of bliss mm, i've heard of it i haven't read it oh my gosh so you've given me such great tips for books i really appreciate it so basically it, this writer he considers himself a grump and he wants to travel around the world to places where they're typically happier than the United States. Interesting. And Which is like everywhere, uh, you know, ironically. He goes, he goes to a couple places that are on no one's wellness list, though, too, to compare, right. you know. But when I read the Bhutan section, I think oh, mm. Aaron has to go there. Have you been to? Oh, it's funny you say that. It's like the top of my list of dream trips to go to. I would love to go to Bhutan. It's like a real life Shangri-La, isn't it? It's like this kind of magical kingdom that was just hidden yeah. from the world for so long. Well, their currency, their their GDP is based on happiness. Yeah. So you definitely need to read this. So, but um, what else is in say your top five of places you have not been that you want to go to? What what countries would I love to go to or I'd love to explore? You know, I don't feel like I've done enough of Asia. I really feel like I really, really want to get back there. I've, I've never been to the Himalayas. So Bhutan would be top of my list for there, but I would, I'd love to do some of the treks around, around that too. I really want to do a big expedition a big adventure you know i do a lot of stories about people that have done these great big trips and i'm sort of i want to do a big trek you know like a big a long distance trek that or expedition that would take like a year to do you oh, know wow. um uh, I, one guy drove a jeep you know from alaska down to ushuaia on the southern tip of um argentina something I, like that I've you know word that episode by the way oh thank you yeah dan Greck, he's amazing and um so I'd like to see some more of that side of the world, I think. Um, and also Africa. I really haven't seen very much of Africa. 
North, North Africa and South Africa, but like there's so much in the middle. Uh, I'm just working on a story right now about Angola, which is you know, a place you wouldn't think to go to. Not many people do, but just like unbelievable, beautiful, amazing surfing and hiking. I'd, you know, I'd love to, Africa for me is a special hit. Like when I've been there, you, I mean, they call it the mother. We've all come from Africa and there is this sense of returning. I, I find when you get out into those wild places in Africa and I, I would love to, to do that. I would love to go to Namibia, um, you know, Botswana and, and, and other places like that in Africa. And I've done a fair bit of South America, but I love it, you know, and I, there's a ton of places I'd, I'd like to go back and see, one of which is the Amazon, which I've never, never been to. And I would love to spend some time exploring that and, and try and get out. I love Peru. I've been there once, but I really want to go back. Yeah, the world's a big place, you know, and that's not even mentioning Europe, actually. Yeah. And the number one, my number one place in Europe is Slovenia. So if I was to choose Asia, I'd go Bhutan. If I was to choose Europe, I'd say Slovenia. If I was to choose South America, Argentina, probably. Uh, I've done Chile and Patagonia, but but not um, not uh, Argentina. And then I would maybe Alaska or Northern Canada, you know, like go right up to kind of Manitoba and Churchill in that area for, for Canada. So that'll, that'll keep me pretty busy. Well, almost all of those places are in my top five too. So we should oh, great. plan on going together. We'll, we'll meet up there. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will leave you uh, with that, that maybe one day we'll be future traveling buddies. I would love that. Yeah, that would be really fun. And I appreciate your time and I I thank you so much for being on Revel Revel. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely to chat with you. I really enjoyed it. So some final thoughts, Revelers. You know, Aaron talked about being a wondrous, and I think that is such a great attitude for life that we should all be a wondrous. I am not going to spend time to go over my normal sort of ads for my sponsors, both betterhelp.com and bookshop.org. You know where to find the book list that we talked about. But instead of talking about better help and maybe therapy, I just wanted to comment that travel and nature and getting out in the world can be therapy. So remember that if that doesn't work, then I think talk to a therapist. <laughs> Aaron talked about a footpath in England, and most of my listeners might not understand the way that footpaths work in England, and so I am going to have a link in the show notes and a picture and how much I adore footpaths. Oh, this country needs what in some countries called almonds means like the right of way that humans have the right of way and can just go anywhere. Oh, I love it. Well, Revelers, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Aaron Miller and thanks especially to my travel partner in life, Simon Drebel, who made not just the sound effect possible, but all of our travels possible. And here we go to Alaska, honey. (laughs)